Our guest today is a founder and head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence. Um, he is a globally recognized speaker on the use cases and ROI of artificial intelligence in business. He's been called upon by organizations like World Bank, the United Nations, Interpol, and global pharmaceutical and banking companies. Daniel helps business and government leaders navigate the competitive landscape of AI capabilities and build strategies that win. His AI predictions and research has been featured in TechCrunch, uh, Xconomy, Forbes, and more. His research is referenced in Harvard Business Review, the World Economic Forum, MIT Technology Review, and many more. Please welcome Dan Fajala. I hope I got your name right. Thank you so much for being with us. You did great, Madhu. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here and glad to be here with you and Abhi. This is going to be a lot of fun today. Fantastic. I think I have to start with this. Uh, personally, I got so intrigued with AI because of you and your podcast. And, and I've been a very, very you know, strong listener. And in fact, listen to every single episode of yours um, from the AI in Business podcast and AI in Banking podcast. It's fantastic. So we have been associated for with low, a little, I think, little over three or four years now. And uh, short and sweet and great takeaways. I think those are the key things that I learned from you. Abhi and I would like to start with your life journey, Dan. You know? Well, I, I want to give you a thanks as well, uh, Madhu, for, for being a longtime listener and, and supporter. And we've got, you know, we've, we've had you with us a couple of times. And in fact, we had a I was on the phone every now and again, I'll, I'll call our Emerge Plus customers. So the people that subscribe for our, our use case library and our best practices, I'll just get on the phone with a certain percentage of them every month just to learn new ideas. And there was a fella whose name, for whatever reason, evades me, although you'd probably remember a fella in India who, uh, yeah, you know, I was looking into you. I talked to Madhu because he knew you and he said you were great. And I was like, oh man, Madhu got us an Emerge Plus customer. I'm really happy about that. So I, I can't appreciate you enough uh, on my side as well, brother, but I'll give you the, the backdrop. So my, um, my path to artificial intelligence was very much not a normal one. So um, I, I don't have a consulting background. I don't have a formal business training of any kind. Um, I was a 21-year-old who went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania for skill acquisition and uh, skill development. So I, I went you know, for my master's in basically psychology, cognitive science um, under Martin Seligman in the positive psychology program at UPenn. So did the Ivy League thing, got into more debt than a 21-year-old should get into. Uh, but uh, but uh, I was running a martial arts gym at the time. And so my fascination was there's all this great academic literature um, from uh, different um, folks from Anders Ericsson and, and other people, the founders of goal setting theory, around people who've learned to memorize skills or learn to master a musical instrument or learned a, a physical skill faster than other people. And that was my fascination. How do we learn to learn more quickly? And of course, I was competing at this point ar around the United States in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I happened to win a, a national tournament at, at, at Brown Belt um, and, and you know, teach seminars from Rio de Janeiro to uh, you know, Ohio. Uh, and, and, um, so I was, I was really a fighter. That's actually why my ears are a little bit puffy here is from, from a little bit, a little bit too much time spent on the mat as a young fella. So I went in there purely with a fascination in the cognitive science and athletic performance. But, um, while I was there, there were folks tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Hey, you know, you're, you're kind of the oddball fella here in positive psychology, focusing on skill development. 
and, and kind of adult learning, which is kind of another academic field, um, there's some folks doing machine learning over, you know, in this other department that you should check out. So at UPenn at the time, there was something called Google Zeitgeist, where Google and, and other organizations, I think, were kind of pooling resources with academia to detect kind of sentiment and topics from social media data. So Twitter was a big source at the time. And back in the day, this is before this stuff was commonplace, being able to tell that, you know, people in Chicago are more depressed today than New York was like really like a wow factor, you know what I mean? Very interesting. <laughs> or, or that, um, you know, there might have been certain words or terms or phrases that went around uh, before a flu hit in a, in a certain city. So like, oh, wow, people start talking about these kind of topics even before they talk about illness and they seem to be have a higher propensity. So these interesting mm -hmm. things were coming forth. And as I learned more about machine learning, um, not formally in grad school, but just through my tertiary involvement with those folks at UPenn, um, and as I started to Google more and more of the long-term consequences of AI, I started reading more Ray Kurzweil, reading a lot of Nick Bostrom, um, since we, we've been able to interview Bostrom actually on our podcast. Um, but I, I really became quite convinced by the time I graduated school that um, uh, maybe the pessimist in me would say I got the wrong degree. In other words, um, I, I became pretty convinced artificial intelligence was going to so radically alter day-to-day -day human experience over the next 30 years that it, it almost wouldn't make that much sense for me to focus on anything else. And I know that sounds a bit extreme, but you know, if you if you go on Google and you, you look up some of the TED Talks I've given, I get a little bit more wacky and philosophical about the long-term consequences of AI, but I happen to believe that those will be so substantial that it's worth uh, essentially working um, you know, the rest of my life towards. So uh, became convinced of that, but that doesn't start a business, I'll tell you what, it, that, that's just a realization. So I'm still running a martial arts gym in an 8,000 person town in the middle of it, and that's actually, if you bundle the two towns together, you might call it a 4,000 person town in Rhode Island. So the smallest state in the nation, and very small town. So that's what I'm doing for a living. Not exactly the best uh, tee up for, for being an AI consultant. Um, but I started doing interviews. Um, I started studying the space ravenously and accessing different kinds of experts. I started an e-commerce company and sold that. And by the time I sold that company, um, we built a pretty significant audience and network of the cutting edge vendors and the business users of this technology. And we started doing market research. Um, this is, you know, three, four years ago, market research, mostly in the banking and the insurance space, but also some stuff in, in the public sector as well. So as you'd mentioned, we've, you know, given talks and, and done research for, uh, organizations like, you know, the world bank and, and presented it, uh, you know, when, when work with organizations like the OECD, um, and that turned into a full-blown market research company. So very strange story. It was a personal interest and realization that steered me away from being a martial arts competitor and teacher uh, into a fellow who studies the business implications of AI. So about as strange a path as you can get. I have to be honest about that, but, but that's the truth. That's amazing story to, to hear. I think you've, you've covered everything in un, under two, 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 three minutes, which is fabulous. Excellent. So I think, Dan, that's that's great. And this is where you got interested into AI. But what stage did you decide that this is, this is where you're going to make your career? And what were the next step that you took for that? Yeah, well, you know, um, it certainly wasn't a money-making venture off the bat, as I, as I mentioned. You know, I was running a martial arts gym. I ended up um, doing a bunch of seminars. So I won a, a, a healthy number of tournaments and uh, filmed the tournament stuff and filmed my seminars, started selling that online. I eventually grew that into a couple million dollar e-commerce business called Science of Skill, which has since sold to a, a, a organization in, in the Midwest who has grown it astronomically since since then. Um, so I was doing that uh, as my kind of uh, the way to fund this business. But in the meantime, I really didn't have a business model for the first three, four years of doing this. Um, I was 
you know, making my dollars in e-commerce. I was spending all my nights and weekends interviewing folks, going deeper and, and asking the question, what does the world need here? And as it turns out, um, there's two categories of folks who answered the question that you just asked, which is, you know, well, what's your next step? What's your business? One category was innovation and strategy leaders in large companies. These folks need to do what, what, as it turns out, most of my interviews and most of our market research ends up being focused on finding AI opportunities, aligning it with a strategy and a roadmap, which is actually a real art and science with respect to AI, quite different than traditional IT, um, conveying the value to leadership. We got to get some budget, otherwise nothing's happening here. And then rolling forward with initial projects, which basically means staffing up a team and setting our ROI benchmarks. If we can't do that last part right, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so a lot of our interviews across industries, whether they're the biggest enterprise in the world, we've had head of AI, HSBC, Comcast, all kinds of great companies, or the vendors, we tended to focus on those strategic leader skills. So innovation strategy leaders in the enterprise were asking us, hey, can you help us build a strategy? Can you help us um, find high ROI use cases? And the other category was the consulting side. So these are people that run consulting or advisory firms. They already have these enterprise relationships and they want to help them steer the ship. But to be honest, they don't have the access we have, nor do they have the, the eight years of grilling and interviewing as many people and polling and surveying as many people as we have to get the pulse on the market. And so we serve market research and advisory services to that services ecosystem as well. The one thing both parties have in common is they are what we call catalysts for AI. They are the people who find those opportunities, communicate that value, align it with strategy and drive forward change. So um, it was really them coming to us and saying, can you help us with this? Can you help us with that? Where eventually I picked up the pattern. I said, okay, we've got cool two great parties here. One thing in common, I know where to focus my research. I know eventually how to package and sell this stuff and then staffed up, grew a team and, and started growing a company. So that was the, it was really the market that made the decision for me more or less. That's beautiful. I think the most exciting uh, period for a startup is, is normally the six to 12 months. You know, you, you've got ideas coming in from every single corner of the world and then you assimilate and rightly said that the market has driven your dream yeah. And obviously, it's it takes a village uh, for you to be successful. How did you create that interest within the team? And how did you take it forward to the next level? So you have got any specific challenges that you faced? And how did you overcome any thoughts on those? Yeah, sure, man. There's so much there. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that we ran up against. Um, and, you know, that, that was really tough, as, as there is with any business that you get off the ground. But the thing about AI and market research, um, is that the, the whole space is really nascent. So, you know, selling subscription videos online for that e-commerce company, there's a lot of folks that have done something similar. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy to get in the Inc. 5000 or whatever, um, but, but you know, I don't give myself more credit than is due for growing a multi-million dollar company in a space where it, it's, not, it's not like there's one handbook, but you can figure it out, right? It's been done. In AI, the, the tougher part was the whole field is new. Who spends on yeah. anything? You know, events became a thing that was really big. Um, but you know, spend with vendors was really shy for a very long time. These companies are living even today. A lot of them just on venture money. Um, you know, so so who's willing to spend on what? Where does a, a market researcher, an inside-oriented firm, even even have a fit? And one thing that we ran into um, was uh, pretty early on, kind of figuring out. Um, ultimately what what were the kinds of things that enterprise companies would actually need help with because mm -hmm. there's already the mckinsey's of the world and the deloitte's of the world and and they'll they'll produce a ton of you know thought leadership in this space they certainly have bigger brands than we do the only virtue we have is the ability to focus more narrowly and the second advantage is is uh 
really, really deep connections in both the enterprise space and the vendor space with AI. Like the Rolodex that we have is, is really the basis of the value of the company, the ability to, to tap you know, heads of AI at XYZ number of companies in, in insurance or in banking or in whatever uh, quickly is, is part of why, why people choose us. But to, to ask, okay, how do we wield those resources in a way that people actually care about? You know, we had hypotheses and put together some kind of early reports around kind of market landscapes and early reports around certain kinds of best practices. And, and they did kind of middlingly well. Um, and the, the way that we had to sort of work our way through that was uh, frankly, working with some people even just on a, a purely advisory basis, some of them not, not even charging, but folks that we mm. thought were the right kind of customer, these innovation strategy people, and just talking to them regularly about what their problems are. And they were just using it as kind of a free brain picking, but we were using it as what's the research we need to build here. Um, mm. And so it actually took more of that and across more industries than I would have ever expected to find those true commonalities where we could boil down the specific areas we were going to focus and, and be better than the competition and, and genuinely be able to say that if Forrester was in on the bid or somebody else was in on the bid, hey, um, we totally trust their expertise. You know, in this specific area, we feel like we're, we're actually going to be able to best to knock it out of the park. So finding that took a lot of wrestling and then a lot of conversations more than we ever thought um, to, to refine it. So that was certainly a challenge. You asked about team. Was there something you wanted to know about building the team there? Exactly. So uh, what skills did you have in your team? And You know, as an early stage company, um, I think the, the right way to think about staffing up is um, to, to think about, you know, what's going to be immediately valuable for the business and is going to be affect, able to affect your P&L because you don't have mm -hmm. unlimited funds. You know, I had to make the distinction as to what's a full-time or, or almost full-time role versus what's contracted. So, uh, Dan, I think when you start a company, especially with AI, like uh, people have a lot of perceptions about AI. I just wanted to get your view around how did you go about changing the mindset of some of the industry leaders that you were dealing with? Or was there a conscious effort uh, focusing on uh, making them understand what AI can do and what it cannot do for them? And the other thing what I've seen is that uh, your company talks a lot about ROI. Was that a strategy to make sure people understand that AI just not, is, is not just a buzzword, but it can actually solve their problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, ROI is a huge focus for us because, you know, um, at the end of the day, you know, companies have to, uh, have to survive and thrive. But, but actually, it's a huge focus for us because AI ROI, just like much, much of other domains of, of innovation ROI, kind of needs to be thought about in a bit of a different way. So to answer your first question, um, the leveling up of what we call AI fluency. If people go into Google and they type in executive AI fluency uh, into mm -hmm. Google, an article will show up from Emerge and, and they'll get kind of our infographic and model of how we think about fluency. So we're really of the belief that AI, executive AI fluency is kind of the linchpin for mm -hmm. projects to either succeed or, or fail. There's a lot of ways to blow a lot of money on AI, even if you've got PhDs from Carnegie Mellon and Stanford. Um, and so, yeah, our, our business is actually, we're, we're in the business of AI fluency. We're in the business of informing leadership teams, informing not just uh, bringing them data and saying, hey, here's where you should go. Of course, recommendations matter and bringing our own expertise matters. But they want, by the time we leave, they want to have a better darn grasp of their whole sector. They want to have a better grasp of what all their competitors are doing. And they want to have a better conceptual grasp of what the technology can do as it pertains to their strategy. And even if they don't want that, and we come in for some very pointed need, 
we're always going to feed a, a spoonful of sugar to help medicine go down. We're going to give them what they want, but, but they're going to leave understanding conceptually what this stuff does. So you're right. There's a lot of misconceptions. Um, and you know, we're, we're lucky to have a position where we really see ourselves as, as hopefully a lever for improving AI fluency, uh, even for people that never do business with us. They just read our articles. You know, we've got millions of folks on the site every year now. Um, we crossed 3 million in podcast downloads a while ago here. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we love being able to be that beacon, but in our paid work, we're definitely that, that beacon too. So lifting fluency is critical. Um, ROI is critical because of how nuanced it is. Again, I'll reference a Googleable thing, but if people type in um, the three kinds of AI ROI into Google, an article will show up or emerge, um, and they'll get to see our, our framework. And the reason AI ROI is such an important point, of course, companies need to invest money and see an investment. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, there's a couple interesting things at play. There's a paradigm of how we're doing business. There's a paradigm of how we're unlocking capability within the company where we're not just kind of tacking on point solution here, point solution there. That ends up looking like a lot of technical debt, actually, if you do that with AI over time. And that's where most enterprises start. That's fine, but we, we want to move them along in the maturity a little bit faster. They've got to think about three kinds of, of ROI. So they've got to think about that measurable, which could be efficiencies or top line, or it could be something measurable that they think is going to tie to efficiency or top line, like uh, customer service uh, responses, for example, ratings of some kind. Um, it could be that. So something we can tack and measure you know, in cross your fingers relatively short term. There's no easy way to make time commitments for AI projects, but that's that's one. The second is strategic. So if we think about our, our goals as a company, what do we want to become in terms of digital transformation vision? What are our three to five year uh, big thrusts as a company, the things we, we want to push forward, a new product, uh, new markets we want to enter, whatever the case may be. What are our key differentiators? What makes us different now? What do we think is going to sustain that over time? So we call these strategic anchors. If we think about these, where does this project um, deliver on those? Are we actually moving closer to a strategic anchor? Or are we heading into a little dark corner for a toy AI project? Are we unleashing a whole new paradigm way of learning and doing um, in a dark corner where it's really not going to affect the, the DNA of the firm. Um, and then the third kind is what we call AI capability ROI, which, which frankly, we just don't think anybody else is really talking about nearly as much as, as should be done. Um, and this is the idea that as we move forward with AI projects, we improve core AI maturity. Um, another Googleable term would be emerge critical capabilities. If people type that into Google, they'll find the article. Um, we think about AI maturity in terms of skills, culture, mm -hmm and resources. The idea is this, when we're done with an AI project, sure, hopefully we got some measurable return on less fraud. Okay, great, Let's. we're a little closer to this kind of customer experience strategic aim that we hope for. But also, do we have smarter subject matter experts and managers in terms of understanding the value of our data? Have we moved the needle on the culture to make it a little bit closer to a culture of iteration? Um, have we actually improved the data infra itself to be more accessible for future projects? Yes or no. So the difference between toy projects and the, the most mature and properly selected initial snowballs to AI transformation is if we're aligning those three. And there's a whole framework about pulling that off that we've extracted from the Facebooks and the Slacks and the real cutting edge Silicon Valley folks, as well as the hard lessons learned from the 200-year-old enterprises that are doing this stuff. There's a whole process there. But the reason ROI is something we talk about so much is because it's so hard and different. And being able to have a way to conceptualize that and move forward with that for our clients is, is among the most important tools. So we focus and learn a lot in that space. So that's, that's the emphasis.
what a great answer so where yeah. can people find this um, gold uh, dan you know emerge plus uh, you want to talk about that um yeah sure i mean you know emerge plus is is our kind of uh individual access subscription tier. So we do have a number of our frameworks, a number of our our, uh, our resources. So we, we have a, a library of thousands of AI use cases, which are all sorted and organized by industry and by business function. So people can just click on customer service and find oodles of use cases just there. So to be able to quickly iterate, ideate, find ideas, find matches to potential problems, we've got tools there. AI white papers to kind of master topics quickly. So AI and financial services, what are the terms? What are the core use cases? What do I need to know? I don't want to read everything. Give me one thing, boom, that's the white papers. And then the third element is the best practice guides. So this is where we actually have frameworks for things like staffing an AI team, frameworks for things like uh, adopting artificial intelligence in a line of business that has no AI in its DNA at all. What's the kind of phasic process there? Um, so we have a series of, of those frameworks. That's, that's all in Emerge Plus. Um, companies that that are kind of involved with us a little bit more deeply on the AI services side, we have a program called Catalyst, so emerge.com slash catalyst for AI services firms that really want to not just have access to those frameworks, but be able to put them to use to win new business and to really deliver for their customers, so get some hands-on help. And then we have much deeper market research services for enterprises. So when enterprises come to us, sometimes somebody on a innovation team at, you know, a Verizon Wireless or a XYZ Bank, whatever it is, um, will, uh, you know, we'll grab an Emerge Plus membership, but usually it's the beginning of a conversation to help them with whatever the core initiative is. Maybe they're building a strategy, maybe they're picking a vendor, um, and, and, and we have research to help them. So it's kind of a gradient, but Emerge Plus is probably the easiest way for individuals to, to learn some of the, the, the good stuff here. Yeah, I think that's great that you described this framework because uh, I think it's very, very important because I see a lot of organizations, you know, starting AI project and they're just working in silos and they're not aligning it with the ROI or the strategy. And because, you know, you get this new tool, you have the team to do it and you just start working in one small pocket of your organization and yeah. start doing things. And then sometimes they may work or they may not work. But I think what's important is the framework and how you go about executing your overall company strategy and how it is aligned with it. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's and there's there's really robust frameworks around um, building what we call an AI transformation vision, building a phasic AI roadmap to support that vision, and then we have a, a whole model called the bullseye model for picking the initial set of projects, a small portfolio of high leverage projects that not only are going to deliver some measurable return to help us win some leadership support, you know, win some enthusiasm from the team, but also that are going to be on the path to building maturity and strategic value as well. So there's there's ways of doing these things. Um, but it's also new that the only way to pick up on these ways is to get on the darn phone with everybody learning the hard lessons and doing it right and, and uh, you know, picking their brain. So, um, yeah, so it, it's it's an exciting space and it's a space that is forced to keep us busy because I think it's going to change every six months. So we're always updating stuff. That's Maybe great. Sure. Dan, I've got one question around tech investments. Sure, uh, sure. You wanted to fund your startup tech merge yourself rather than through investors. And you right. grew an online business from scratch and making it to 2 million turnover in less than three years. You must be doing something right. What is your secret sauce? You know, in, in terms of in terms of secret sauce, geez. Um, I, well, for entrepreneurship, I don't know if this is common advice or feel good advice. I, I don't I don't really think it's either of those. But I, I think you you have to have a certain amount of hell bentedness. Um, to, to know that this is going to be something that you're going to push through and, and succeed with because it's it's going to be it's going to be pretty tough. You know, I spent a lot of my mid twenties on kind of like 
you know, everywhere between like 50 and 100K a month in the e-commerce business. I spent like a lot of that time, like on the screaming edge of bankruptcy, like not literally, but, but like, you know, close enough where like a couple really big inventory things would have like thrown me into a, a pretty rough place. Um, so I think really fervent dedication um, and, and where that sprung from for me was I knew that ultimately we'd want to serve the most powerful nations and organizations in terms of the implications of AI. I knew, you know, from eight years ago that ultimately I wanted to be able to provide value to that space. And that's why it's been such an honor to speak at the United Nations headquarters in these places. because God, it took a long time to, to earn the right to do that. Right. Um, but, uh, but that was really driving it, that, that business science of skill, I was passionate about martial arts, but it wasn't my, my life uh, goal, but, but I knew that that business was going to be the key to do what I ultimately wanted to do with, with my life. So I think really fervent kind of hell bentedness was, was a big part of it. I also think that having some, um, you know, uh, having some good coaches early on is also critical. So for the e-commerce business, I had a few early mentors who, who had built somewhat similar companies, not identical, um, but you know, we, we had our own insights. I had some hypotheses about the market, about how we could grow faster than the norm um, and how we could, we could break into the ink list and, and you know, do some things a little better. But, um, but I worked with some folks who had kind of been there, done that to different tiers of success within the e-commerce space and within the subscription space, which, which is where we operated. And so paying attention to, to coaches was, was another important thing. It's a fascinating answer because that's, it's also coming emotionally from you on how you became successful. When you look back, that's a very true reflection of, uh, of what you have done, right? Uh, this pandemic, right, always gives a great opportunity for humans to research and uh, re-emerge. I'm going to borrow the word emerge from your company. How do you see tech, especially AI, evolving in 2021? and your massive predictions. Now, there are some indicators uh, when it comes to different industries, like we've seen with retail sectors, now the online spending has skyrocketed, okay? And that's a big behavioral change from a customer's perspective. What's your prediction? How do you think uh, things are going to evolve from now? Well, this is a really big and broad question. If I talk non-industry specific, um, again, there's some sectors where we, we study a little deeper than others, whether it be, you know, banking, insurance, defense, uh, logistics. But if, if I talk high level, how AI is going to roll forth into the world, given, given COVID, um, couple, couple things here. So I've talked about in the past, some, some pros and cons for AI, uh, in, in this kind of COVID era, mm -hmm. there's an interesting piece. It's actually very recent. I didn't come up with this, but I wish I was smart enough to have done. So, uh, <laughs> it, it might've been the world economic forum who said, talked about a, a K-shaped recovery where um, the, the big tech and the existing market leaders kind of just go up and then sort of the small businesses and, and a lot of the other companies uh, go down. Um, I think with AI, that's undeniably the case. So um, firms that are uh, not really at the very screaming edge of AI already, I think may be nudged back a couple pegs um, because of new concerns around having to digitize to deal with remote workers, digitize to deal with remote customers, um, and, and maybe just dealing with some of the financial consequences of, of COVID as well. I, I don't know when all is said and done. I'm still kind of amazed. Like I'm sitting here in the United States, we're just printing money and somehow things are still operating. Like the restaurants like have like two people in them. Like how, how is all of this still working? Um, mm -hmm. I think there's some economic pain uh, coming. I think there's some economic pain being felt. And so I think that some firms that didn't have the massive war chest and didn't have the existing uh, base infra of digitization are going to be nudged farther down the line 
uh, in terms of AI, in all honesty. I, I don't want to paint an optimistic frame where it isn't warranted. I'm, I'm not a cheerleader for AI. Um, my responsibility is to to our customers to, to say it like it is. So I think that's that's going to nudge things back. And and also, I think there's a factor where um, uh, the, the lower hanging fruit, I think there's going to be a lot of expansion in RPA and automation type technology, which might not be AI at all. There's a, we're going to realize as everybody's working remote and, and as we're forced to digitize, thinking about digitization and, and maybe forced to think about efficiencies in all seriousness, whether that means headcount process, whatever. Um, you know, I can't mince words. That, that's, a, that's on the table, right? Efficiency is on the table when you go through this. Um, I think that finding some of that low-hanging fruit, not the only pair of goggles I want enterprise leaders looking through, but, but if we're going through some pain, efficiency is where a lot of focus is going to be. And I think that RPA and maybe the next, um, let's call it 12 months, maybe the next 18 months, we'll see a bigger uptick than AI writ large. So if we just look at both of them comparatively. Um, but I do think then that baton will be handed over to AI as the economic recovery starts to, to come out. There will be some dinosaurs who will have died. There will be some companies that got more digitally strong, a little bit more firm with their data and their processes and their general digitization. Um, and there's going to be some enterprise leaders that have just been building this massive uh, you know, uh, technology investments during this time. And I think AI will take off, take off later. So, you know, a, a little bit of a staggered impact of, of AI across enterprises generally, and also a bigger bifurcation in terms of the advantage of the major players, the, the folks that are already top five, top 10 global um, uh, compared to the rest of, of the market. Maybe even a bigger bifurcation between, let's say, the more advanced portions of the West and, and some of the rest of the world in terms of AI adoption as well. Um, so high level, that's that's one dynamic. Let me know what you guys want to dive into. I'm happy to get more granular. I know that's a very high level idea. So any specific industries that you feel uh, will actually do really well uh, post post this COVID-19 and you know, especially the, the delivery side of things, uh, the, the online education. I think we're seeing these uh, coming up uh, thick and fast in terms of innovations and people jumping on board and having great customers and, and you know raking millions. So is there any other uh, industries uh, from your perspective you feel is going to be, ah, that's the industry that we got to watch out for. It could be even health yeah. tech, FinTech, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to comment on your point, uh, we have a piece coming out, geez, I don't know, if it's a month or two months or something, about the 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 industries and sub-industries that are already sort of the, the most pound-for-pound AI-fluent, AI-mature, AI-nimble, able to really wield this technology. We like the word wield. You know, can you do something with it? Can you affect the bottom line? Can you affect the market? Can you affect the cut? Can you wield it? Um, and the folks that are farthest along there are, are also consequently some of the folks that have kind of boomed from, uh, from, from COVID as well. Um, so uh, one example there is just pure e-commerce, not brick and mortar to e-commerce, but, but pure e-commerce companies. Pure e-commerce companies, pound for pound, have more you know, embedded AI in their processes because by your nature, if you start off e-commerce, data, digital, that's already the basis of the business. So your, your staff mix, your founder mix, your operations, it's already starting there, right? If you start with a bunch of physical shoe stores versus a purely online store, you start with a different amount of digital fluency off, off the cuff. So pure e-commerce is a space that pound for pound is already has more, you know, if we think about a whole business and we ask how many processes are tangibly benefiting from AI, not, not frivolously experimenting, but tangibly benefiting from AI. It's an exaggeration to say, oh, all e-commerce companies are using AI. No. 
Um, it, it's also frivolous to say uh, at, a, at a company like, you know, Wayfair is rather advanced, but even at a company like Wayfair, oh, surely, you know, most of their processes are AI informed. I actually can't say that. I think there's probably a, a, a strong fistful that make a big impact and, and another bunch of experimental ones. Um, uh, and sometimes it's only a handful that can make a big difference. But pound for pound, we look at the whole of the business processes. We look at the pie slice that's tangibly benefiting from AI. E-commerce is an industry that has a bigger pie slice than most. Point blank period, end of story, and they're benefiting from COVID. Second would be um, online media broadly. So we could think about this as social media. We could also think about it as like pure uh, online publishers and sort of sharing platforms, things that kind of interact with the social space. Um, new kinds of media that are emerging, whether it be video or, or what have you. Recommendations is really big there. Those companies, again, they're pure digital, digital in the DNA right off the get, probably data in the DNA right off the get. Um, these folks have the fertile soil to be doing AI and probably they were thinking about it when they founded the doggone company as opposed to, you know, a bank that, you know, they, they thought about AI 250 years after they founded the company, um, which poses its own challenges uh, and, and its own kind of, of uh, you know, uh, hurdles that we got to jump through. But um, but pure kind of online media broadly, we can think about that as social or, 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 you know, video multimedia. That's another kind of subsector where that pie slice is way bigger than you're going to see in logistics. And you're going to see in auto insurance. And you're going to see in manufacturing. You're going to see in any of those traditional industries. Third, fintech. So, uh, you know, we have companies like a transfer wire or, or um, I mean, there's, there's an endless, you know, your Robin Hoods who are getting some interesting press right now with all this GameStop hubbub that we're seeing, which is utterly hilarious. Um, so th these, this fintech ecosystem, again, digital first, right? Probably data in the DNA, again, benefiting, right? Branches are all dying. S some traditional fin service having a little bit of, you know, they're, they're wrestling with some stuff. Financial services just blooming, blooming in Asia, blooming in the Western world. It's an exciting space. And so those are three that I can say not only started with the biggest pie slice, but by golly, they're also the ones that are more propelled than held back on the aggregate by COVID. And so, again, K, you know, uh, it's it's it's, you know, it'd be really cool if there were some old stodgy sectors that were, you know, about to fall apart and then, uh, you know, COVID saved them. But if you made me think hard enough, I might be able to think of like two or three neat, novel, weird examples of that. But I think it's quite the opposite generally. So I've got, Dan, just one question here in terms of, as you said, the divide is going uh, bigger and bigger between the big companies and small companies. And it'll be very difficult for them because they have to either adapt or perish. What would be a couple of advice for small companies, you know, uh, who are not using that much of emerging technologies or AI? Like what should they do if they want to survive and grow? Uh, especially post-COVID? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, I guess we are one of those companies, although maybe we're even smaller than the ones you're talking about. You know, we, we don't, you know, it's not like everything I do has to do with AI. We're a market research firm, right? At some point, I'm sure we're going to have, our, our media will get big enough where we'll have some level of recommendation around our e-commerce offerings or our email marketing or something, but it's really not substantial for us right now. Um, I like to think we're relatively digital compared to most firms, but um, you know, that's almost certainly the case. But yeah, I mean, small firms, whether you're pretty digital and new or whether you're a little older and you've been around for a while, uh, but you're not one of the big boys. Um, you know, to be frank, I mean, uh, I, I think during this period, you, you got to just focus on your QuickBooks, you know, make, make sure your war chest is deep enough. Uh, make sure you're going to make it through this well. Um, focus on what processes have to be reimagined and have to be transformed. Um, and then have enough discipline to think through 
what is the digital future of this business? What's the trajectory? You know, the markets have changed, customer preferences have changed, all kinds of things about the world have changed. What are we to become? And factor into that brainstorm where AI might fit in. Doesn't have to be tomorrow. I never encourage people like, oh, you gotta be doing AI. Well, if you're the global top five of like a pharma or banking industry and you're any division and you, you, AI is not even on your radar, I will probably scold you. Um, you know, like playfully, but I'll do it. Um, but 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 uh, if you're a smaller firm, I'm not necessarily going to say you should do it. But if you're big enough, um, you should at least, as you create that vision, imagine where AI might find its way in. Not so that you can go do AI right now. Again, I'm not a cheerleader. But so that you can build the necessary digital maturity and the right skill balance to be able to unlock those capabilities that are inevitably going to be part of your future. So have the discipline to do that after we, after we make sure we're knuckled down and we're going to be safe here. So I would say that those three things would be um, highest on my list for for those smaller firms. Awesome. I think I've I've got a couple of uh, questions uh, from a philosophical side just to close up this Let's do it. discussion. <laughs> so um, we talk about data, uh, data all the time, and then you know, people also associate that with it's it's a new oil, new electricity, and then you will know Harari. I was actually listening to V Forum. Um, all the time, and you know, this actually hit me hard. And then, you know, he talked about, uh, you know, how the the evolution of ownership, uh, you know, occurred right from uh, the days where people own their lands, and then you know they've got a fence. Then they decide, hey, you can come in, you can't come in, and and then that actually give that ownership from a land perspective. Then came machinery, you know, obviously factories. Then they decided, yeah, it's it's a physical instrument. Then they can talk about that ownership of it. Now we've got data everywhere. The data travels at the speed of light, and then you can make copies of it, claim it's yours. How do you see this is there's no ownership, and at the same time, there's all ownership. I actually have read much less Harari than than people often expect. I I, I feel kind of bad about it, but I, I read a lot of Bostrom and then I read a lot of old stuff, and then I basically draw from interviews. But but I'm interested in, in his thoughts too. High level here, um, uh, I, I think that it, it's, I, I see an unfortunate kind of fracturing in terms of how different societies are going to deal with this. And I wonder how that's going to affect the general cosmopolitan spirit and the general ability for us to kind of communicate and do commerce and, and do the kinds of things that, you know, the, the upsides that, that sort of, you know, a global world uh, would, would kind of bring us. You know, I think China is going to have a very particular approach to data. Um, and, and I think Europe might have a particular approach to data. Some might argue, you know, maybe a little bit too much on the defensive side, a, a little bit not enough on, on the innovative side. Not saying I'm saying that or anything, but, um, but uh, some people would argue that, right? Um, and then the United States, maybe you'll be too foolhardy or, or too, uh, you know, uh, kind of ignore, ignore the matter altogether. Um, I wonder what that's going to look like. I, I think that there, there may be, um, for better or for worse, a paradigm that just wins. And uh, I think the Chinese paradigm has a decent chance of winning, you know, a, a kind of real government ownership and just just government tapping and, and uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a general loss of, of, uh, of privacy in a very high level. I think that so the whole way this paradigm rolls out, I think, is up in the air. And I think that some of the, the big ideas that are starting to roll forward might not really be the best ones. And I think a bunch of bifurcated ones might also not be best. So I think it's challenging. Unfortunately, it's not a great answer. Um, but, but I do think also that the way we think about a monopoly will have to alter. We have an article called Data Dominance. If people go on Google, they type in E-M-E-R-J, Data Dominance, they can find the article very quickly, um, where we talk about how companies can build these specialized 
sort of uh, types of data sets um, and you know build a great product and that's to their credit. Um, win more customers by having a great product, collect more data by having more customers, and then continue to spin that flywheel to the point where you're essentially unassailable. And it doesn't break the same rules that Rockefeller broke or that they wrote <laughs> to break up Rockefeller, uh, but, um, but, but, but they still serve somewhat of the same purposes in terms of you know, the kind of inequality that maybe we're, we're, we're thinking we might need to, to break up and aerate a little bit here. So I think that the way we monitor power in that regard uh, will have to alter in the commercial space. But my bigger concerns are in the broader public sector and kind of the, the world affairs. Um, anyway, f final encouragement for me is all those people go and get PhDs in this area, think about a strong alternative here, uh, and not, not just ways to, to weaken the innovation of the West, but to have the best of innovation and, and to have the best of the liberties and freedoms that we have in a way that's very different from, from an Orwellian type model. So a um, little bit of a dark note, but I, I think there's some optimism there underneath all that, so. Okay, last question, Dan. So we, we talk about recommendations, the AI advancements, the machine learnings and whatnot. The biggest innovation would be to read humans' mind and body and predict actions. You know, example could be just showing a picture of a person to you and then you go and you, the way that you react, you know, reading your blood vessels, your, your blood pressure, movements of AI can actually predict how you treat the person, your inclination towards your likes and dislikes of that person. Is this the Nirvana state? And what's your prediction of AI in the next 50 years? Well, what I'll say is this. Um, uh, I believe fervently, and, and this will have to be a closing note just due to time in the next call coming up, but I think you're asking a very important question, a question that, in my opinion, isn't being asked ardently enough. I wonder, what are we turning into? What is this all going to become? Ultimately, that's what I'm most interested in. Oh, what keeps Dan up at night? Oh, it must be ROI. No, no, no. I like that. It's valuable, it's value for my customers. I, I, that's a duty for me. And that's something that's really important. But ultimately, what is this all leading towards? That was my initial insight. That's the impetus of the company. I'll say this, I believe in the latter part of the 21st century, um, the major conflicts between uh, political powers and, and between the, the biggest economic players, the, the power players, will ultimately be, be about controlling the substrate that houses the majority of human experience. So VR data and IOT and all that stuff, controlling the substrate that, that houses that data. A lot of experience is gonna be virtual, right? Look at us right now. I mean, yeah. you know, when this is strapped in our face in, in 10 years, it's gonna be a different ballgame. Owning that, which will also be the, the substrate that presumably uh, controls the, the most powerful artificial intelligence. So I think between nations and between the biggest companies, we're ultimately wrestling over where the power lies, which is where sentient human experience exists, which is going to be the virtual space. That is the wrestling match. That's the top of the dominance hierarchy on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. You, there's Googleable is substrate monopoly. I have an article called the substrate monopoly about what that wrestling match might look like and my core hypothesis there. I think to your point, there can be some very dystopian uh, versions of that and visions of that. Um, and, and hopefully we can prevent some of those dystopian ones from happening, but I don't know how we're going to prevent the wrestling match for the top of that pyramid, because as far as I can tell, there can only be one Highlander and it's going to be a, a scary time in the next 50 years. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. For, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you. I think we are right on time. Try Last on thoughts on, on Inspiring Ideas podcast and your feedback. Well, I, I got to say, I really appreciate you having me here. Um, you know, it, it's been a real pleasure riffing with you uh, over the years and being able to collaborate with you a little bit on Emerge. And uh, Abi, I'm glad I got to meet you as well. I think what you guys are doing is, is awesome. So this was a, a fun array of questions. I'm grateful to be here. And I'm looking forward to listening to your future episodes, guys. So thanks so much for having me, okay? Thank you Fantastic. so much, Dan. Thank you so much. Hey,